I'm Michael Cross, host of the KOSU Daily Podcast. Every weekday, I bring you the biggest Oklahoma stories of the day with reporting and analysis from our team of journalists and partners. Get the news you need to start your day in less than 10 minutes. Find the KOSU Daily in your podcast feed and subscribe now. This Week in Oklahoma Politics is sponsored by the Oklahoma State Medical Association, cornerstone of Oklahoma medicine with physician members who are committed to better health for all Oklahomans. Learn more at okmed.org. For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel. The governor state kicked off the 2024 legislative session earlier this week with his sixth state of the state address during the speech Stitt once again called for cutting income taxes but he also mentioned things like college consolidation and tribal relations post mcgirt ryan what did you think of the state of the state address well i think everybody expected the uh, conversation about tax cuts uh, you know that had been the subject of a special session that really went nowhere the week before it was odd a lot of us were up at the capitol in january uh and it was, it was like warm-up uh for for the actual session that kicked off on monday with the governor's state of the state so, you know, the conversation about tax cuts, unsurprising, the reaction, unsurprising. If you're if you're watching, you could see whenever he's bringing this up, the speaker, Charles McCall, uh, is behind him standing up applauding. And the Senate pro temp, uh, Greg Treat, is not, uh, which you know, tells us that nothing has really changed in the political landscape around tax cuts at the state capitol. You're going to have Senator Treat and I believe probably the, the majority in the Senate, including a bipartisan majority in the Senate and then some House Democrats pushing for a grocery tax cut, and then you're going to have the House leadership and the governor pushing for an across-the-board 0.25% reduction in the income tax. That's going to, I think, define a lot of what we see this legislative session. Um, the conversation about consolidation of, of uh, colleges, at least for me, caught you know, caught me off guard. I don't think that a lot of people really saw that on the, on the table, um, and I think that if you're a college or a university out there in the state of Oklahoma, because the governor didn't offer specifics as to which were going to be consolidated or how that would work, you got to be scratching your head and worrying, like, are we going to be around in the next couple of years, and, and what does that look like? Um, so the, the lobbyist government relations folks for these uh, legislative liaisons for these colleges and universities they're going to have a busy session, uh, and, and uh, the conversations about what that looks like specifically will be interesting. The, uh, the governor kind of played both sides of the, the fence with the, with the tribal governments in the state of Oklahoma. On one hand, you know, uh, touting the uh, recent compacts that we've seen, the success, uh, but then on the other hand, going right back to the same kind of rhetoric that we've seen before, where he thinks McGirt has created chaos in the state. Uh, one issue that he also threw out that was kind of surprising uh, was the issue of civil asset forfeiture. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's, you know, blast from the past uh, public policy debates at the state capitol. That's something that I'd worked on, you know, a decade plus ago, uh, trying to end uh, the practice of civil asset forfeiture in the state of Oklahoma. It was, you know, really heartening to hear the governor say, listen, if, if, the, gov if the government seizes your property because they believe it's part of a crime, you're ultimately, you know, found innocent, acquitted, uh, you should get your property back uh, and you shouldn't have to pay to get it back. Uh, that, I think, is, is a very common-sense policy, but, again, one that I wasn't expecting and was pleased to hear about. Neva. 
Well, I thought it was interesting. Um, like most state of the states, the governor obviously had the opportunity to um, restate some of the things that he believes are uh, uh, the positives. He talked about the fact that during the, the during the last five years, there's been uh, record revenue growth. Uh, we have record savings. We have the lowest unemployment. He went along to talk about some of the top ten uh, uh, things, such as top ten and real GDP growth. Um, uh, I think number six in lowest cost of living in the country, number eight in energy affordability, went on and on. Talked about uh, uh, specifically the uh, Sarah Stitt Act, uh, the First Lady's uh, uh, involvement with that uh, legislation and that deals with the drug court system. And he said that we are now number two in the lowest recidivism rates in the nation. So uh, obviously governors want to point to their success. They also want to uh, set the stage for the legislative session. And I think the focus uh, was not surprising. One of the other things uh, that he uh, spoke uh, in some detail was about uh, Oklahoma becoming even more business friendly, talking about the fact that uh, that there, uh, he even said that the legislature, legislature should take a page out of Delaware and Texas's um, playbook and set up systems of courts that were specific to address uh, business uh, disputes. So whether whether lawmakers uh, take that to heart or not uh, remains to be seen. He also drilled down and talked about local government, which I thought was interesting, saying that they needed to have better efforts to be more business friendly and to make sure that there wasn't uh, um, uh, huge permitting fees or things that would delay projects or, or, or be a deterrent for business to want to come into that community and to uh, either grow businesses or, or bring businesses in from out of state. So clearly, the businessman governor uh, mm. was weighing in and trying to trying to uh, kind of recalibrate that discussion, which has really kind of been on the back burner uh, from the legislative perspective. Not that much, really, when you look at it, at least in recent sessions, has been focused on that. We'll see on the tax cut part, as we've talked about over and over and over again, the die is cast. Where, where where the Senate is, where the House is, where the governor is, now can they forge some consensus? I think it will be a long discussion throughout this uh, session. I don't think we'll see any quick resolution. It'll be the conversation probably still uh, in the mix with uh, crafting the final budget, and it may go all the way to the end, as we've seen in, in the past. Interesting talking about business-friendly. I was uh, at dinner earlier this week with with some investors that have, they've come to Oklahoma because they see Oklahoma as really a land of opportunity uh, and, and, and compared to a lot of other states. And uh, they, they're looking at making multi-million dollar investments in the state of Oklahoma over the course of many years. I mean, these, they see this as a, as a state to make long-term investments in. Um, but we started talking about, you know, what, well, you know, what are the policies that are happening here? And we were talking about the, the proposed tax cuts. And they said, well, you know, how much, how much would we get out of that? And so we started looking at that and they said, you know, we'd rather spend that money on infrastructure. You know, that's, that's where, when we think about coming to Oklahoma, the things that we really need are investments in infrastructure. We want investments in education so that the employees that we hire here can send their kids to good schools. Uh, and so that, you know, I think that, you know, business friendly depends on who you're talking to, but it was uh, an interesting conversation because when I brought up tax cuts, their immediate response was, 
we really need to be spending that money on infrastructure. Yeah, I thought the probably one of the best lines or most memorable lines in the entire speech was uh, when he talked about the Wild West of weed yeah. and the <laughs> fact that uh, he pointed to some very, uh, uh, very interesting statistics about uh, how the marijuana regulations and enforcement have uh, uh, really kind of changed the landscape. Uh, he applauded both uh, the Oklahoma Bureau of Narcotics as well as uh, um, OMA, Oklahoma Medical Marijuana Authority, for the work that is being done and the stronger enforcement and regulatory oversight taking place, which changes the landscape in Oklahoma and certainly has that business dimension, uh, as you say, mm -hmm. Ryan, when people come and look at the state, look at the, look at the pluses and the minuses and what they have to potentially deal with, this is certainly something that's been on the front burner for a discussion. And I think we've seen the legislature very thoughtfully and very directly ad address these issues and, and move the needle in, a, in what appears to be, by all indicators, a very positive direction. Director Adri Adria Berry at uh, Oklahoma Medical Marijuana Authority got a well-deserved congratulations from the governor uh, by name in the state of the state address. You know, I think that the governor is right, you know, that we have begun to get a, a handle on a lot of things with the medical marijuana industry. But, you know, there's still, a, a, uh, with regard to medical marijuana in the state of Oklahoma, there's still a long ways to go to make sure that the businesses that are following their laws, you know, doing everything to comply with the rules, that they still are able to, that they're the ones that succeed. Uh, and it's not the folks that are skirting the law or skirting the rules uh, that have an unfair competitive advantage against the, the, po the folks that are doing it right. And I think when you see the number of the decrease in licenses, it would indicate that they are able to weed out, so to speak, <laughs> some of these bad actors. And I think dress the bigger issues of the cartels and many of the other uh, things when we start talking about this subject that regular folks out in these uh, communities across Oklahoma are very, very concerned about. And to that end, uh, Attorney General Gettner Drummond has been, you know, you know, just out in front on that. I mean, the, the amount of seizures that they have made of illegal marijuana, not even marijuana within the medical marijuana system, uh, but illegal marijuana around the state. They've really ramped that up. And, you know, I think that that's, that's a real priority of General uh, Drummond's. Within the governor's state of the state, Stitt mentioned the idea of keeping agency budgets flat or no additional spending to go along with his 0.25% tax cut. So, Neva, how likely are lawmakers to follow along with Stitt's plan for a budget? <laughs> well, uh, first of all, for some light reading, I think it was, what, almost 700 pages, yeah. uh, the governor's budget. But uh, the lawmakers, I mean, they're very quick to say, look, uh, the governor presents a budget. It's our job to write the budget and to pass the budget. And then ultimately the governor will be on his desk to decide uh, where to go from there. But you're looking at an $8.7 billion budget, uh, looks to be the figure that, uh, that they're starting with. And it, it's really the devil's in the details, as we always say. I mean, you look at some of the things where he is saying there should be um, some some cuts, some some whole held basically harmless, a few probably getting a, an uptick. But the bottom line is his budget is flat by his own admission. That's where he wants it to be. Uh, it's an it's an election year. Um, there's a lot of conversation out there, and yet I think what we will see is largely. A fairly, uh, a fairly flat budget, probably, when all is said and done, at least from uh, m much of the conversation that's been at the Capitol this week, kind of a a as the first upshot coming out of the state of the state. So um, it, it will be interesting whether these tax cuts really uh, are the sticking point in the budget, the whole budget conversation, or whether they're parallel conversations and they just kind of move forward to the end and we see what happens.
Right. Representative Cindy Munson, the Democratic leader in the House, you know, she said that the uh, the idea that this is a, a flat budget is really, you know, not recognizing the fact that inflation exists for everyone, you know, not just for, for the private citizen out there going to the grocery store uh, or going to McDonald's and, you know, spending $50 for uh, a family of four to, to sh- you know, go uh, out to eat at McDonald's. You know, it's inflation hits government agencies as well. And so if you aren't increasing the amount of appropriations to a government agency in a time of inflation, uh, you are uh, essentially making budget cuts uh, because they, the dollars that they are appropriated will go, uh, uh, they won't go as far. Um, you also have to begin to think that we've got a lot of you know, grants uh, and, and federal appropriations, you know, some of which are tied to uh, the American Rescue Plan, some of them are tied to covert relief. Mm-hmm. Um, that agencies have been using to operate core services uh, or to operate new services that, you know, maybe as, as Oklahomans we've come to just depend upon and don't really understand that, you know, the funding for this is going to expire at some point. And so when it goes away, there are, cho- there are choices that we're going to have to make. If we have a flat budget and those federal dollars are gone, then, and the state doesn't appropriate new money for it, we, we most likely will see a reduction in uh, actual state services. So, you know, flat budget uh, is is one one is easy to say, but whenever you pair it with the uh, concept of inflation, uh, I don't think it's flat for most state agencies. Well, and I think it's important to note that uh, we we still have Senate Pro Tem Greg Treed saying, "Let's wait on these numbers that come from the Board of Equalization later this month." I mean, he has he has contended all along mm-hmm. and pushed back on the governor's numbers, some of these numbers in his budget. And uh, we'll see who's right and wrong on that. And, and as we know, sometimes when the board meets, there are some surprises. And we've seen, uh, we've seen uh, that in the past. And I think in the instance of this budget year and looking forward to uh, FY 2025, we're going to wind up by the governor's numbers with a, over $5 billion in uh, reserve cash and, and savings. So lawmakers do have, do have some funds there that clearly are available whether they choose to use them uh, for one-time purposes or uh, continue to hold on to that for kind of what we've always called the rainy day, that is uh, that's certainly as these appropriators sit down and hammer out the details, that'll be part of the equation. With the 2024 legislative session now underway, bills are already working their way through the state capitol. I'm just wondering if there are any measures you're watching. Ryan, let's start with you. Well, you know, there was the modern justice uh, modern Criminal Justice Task Force uh, that came about, and they've been doing studies with the Criminal Justice Institute, collecting data from uh, as much as they could. And collecting that data is very difficult, which is the point that I'm about to get to. Uh, collecting that information around the state of Oklahoma, trying to get a handle on what is actually happening in the criminal justice system in Oklahoma, in particular when we begin to look at county jails. I mean, we can look at the Department of Corrections. You've got more of a centralized system there. We can kind of tell you how many people are in prison on a given day in the state of Oklahoma and what they're in prison for. One of the things that we cannot tell you right now is uh, how many people right now, nobody can answer the question, how many people are in county jails in the state of Oklahoma today and what are they there for? And so, you know, the legislature, uh, you know, for, for good or bad, have considered criminal justice reforms, whether that's to decrease sentences, maybe uh, you've got some folks trying to increase sentences or make lower the threshold for felonies, folks trying to increase the threshold for felonies. Uh, but really, we haven't been able to take a real agnostic look at what is the effect of these reforms and, uh, and understanding uh, how they play out on the ground. 
And so you've got um, uh, Chairman Howard, who's the judiciary, Senator Howard, who's the, ju- ju- the judiciary chair over in the Senate. Uh, he has a bill that will um, you know, extend the Modern Justice Task Force, move it forward. There's important provisions in that bill regarding the ongoing collection of data. Uh, Representative Blansett has been working on data collection. She has legislation that would do the same thing. Uh, she's been working on this for years. And in, in fact, I think uh, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's, not, uh, it's not a mistake to say that all of the work of the Criminal Justice Task Force really, I think, came about from work that Representative Blansett has been doing and asking these questions over the many years and trying to understand how can we get all of these disparate uh, systems of uh, criminal justice systems and county jails uh, and, um, uh, and the Department of Corrections and police departments, how can we get all of these things to talk to one another uh, and have it in a central dashboard so that, one, you know, that the law enforcement themselves can work on it and use that for budgeting and also for public safety issues but for, so that the public policymakers at the state capitol uh, can have, you know, real agnostic information that doesn't say one way or the other uh, that this policy is good or bad but that lawmakers can really look at and try to understand how can we address these problems in the state of Oklahoma. So I think you know, Chairman Howard and Representative Blansett, those, those two pieces of legislation are going to be really important uh, moving forward and trying to understand uh, how the state can approach the criminal justice system. Neva. Well, it's interesting. Not only did we have 2,000 bills approximately filed for this session, but let's remember that there were about 2,800 bills that got caught up uh, uh, as unfinished business last session. I mean, when things just kind of grinded to a screeching halt and not much happened in the, in the climate of the, la- of the last session. So those are still available for consideration. I think we're seeing some of those uh, uh, come up uh, quickly in the first days of this session, uh, trying to uh, uh, get some action on. Uh, I, I, there are a number of bills, uh, one of which I remember uh, Senator Kristen Thompson. Uh, she has a bill that would actually create a new agency, kind of a spinoff from the Department of Commerce, um, that essentially, for lack of a better description, privatizes many of the business recruitment functions of, of the Commerce Department. And that will uh, certainly kind of plays into this whole conversation of business-friendly, growing business, uh, and uh, business recruitment. Um, right now, as I recall, there's still no cabinet secretary of commerce, and w- with the uh, the department itself has, uh, I think, still an a, an interim a director. So, as lawmakers look at all of this, um, it'll be interesting to see if that that particular uh, bill gets traction and starts to get some movement. You have other things such as uh, um, y- you have the um, the corporate the corporation commission has the ability, I think, to um, grant power to the utilities to issue um, uh, issue the rates, and and yet it seems to be kicked over now to the legislature, where there is this conversation about uh, temporary performance-based rates, where the uh, public utilities would have an opportunity to have their internal evaluations that would allow them to adjust rates uh, based on what they anticipate or actual, and that would come in the in the midst of the every five years, I think it is, setting those rates. So when you start talking about these uh, large publicly traded uh, power companies uh, and and talking rate increases uh, as the potential conversation point, that'll get uh, uh, that'll certainly get some interest among the uh, lawmakers and and others at the Capitol. And I think finally, when you really look at the overall kind of takeaway from this session, I think the question is, does the legislature have an appetite to really 
drill down and get into some of these complex uh, issues and re- and try to start resolving them? Or is this one where we'll just see a lot of these, as we always do? I mean, of the 2,000, each, each session, it winds up being a couple of hundred. I don't think there's going to be anything different about this year. I think the question is, what is the type of bills that we're going to see move forward? And with the backdrop, like you say, Ryan, uh, the fact that the governor in his state of the state tossed in this uh, kind of piece in the higher ed, in the higher ed discussion mm-hmm. of possibly consolidation of uh, of some of the state in, state uh, colleges and universities i would have to suspect knowing how slowly these things move that mm-hmm. this is setting the stage for the conversation to begin knowing that nothing will happen this year maybe not next year but it's clearly a point that has been out there that's not a new conversation point it's just one that no one's really taken and run with and kind of made it their issue that they were going to uh, grapple with but you have uh, without question as you look at some of these smaller uh, colleges, uh, there are some real issues with being able to maintain the funding to be able to keep programs open and do what they need with all of the challenges with enrollment and all of the changing uh, landscape in in higher ed, not necessarily with our, you know, with the larger universities, but with many of these smaller ones across the state. After four months of negotiation and compromise, Oklahoma Senator James Lankford and his colleagues released a major immigration bill. But after blowback from former President Donald Trump, the state house called the measure dead on arrival. The measure failed to pass a procedural move on Wednesday out of the Senate. Neva, what are your thoughts on the latest for this legislation? Well, first of all, I mean, let's go back and I think it's it's worthy to remember how this all began. Last October, it was the Senate Republicans who basically locked up and said that there would be no move on the national security supplemental bill for Ukraine, for Israel, for Taiwan, unless there was real border security uh, control and and, and uh, that it was addressed. And the border crisis was addressed. Over four months, you had a group of, of negotiators working day in and day out, coming up with what many have described uh, as, as a monumental piece of legislation that really mm-hmm. addressed in deep detail uh, many of the issues that have gone on for decades. Uh, unfortunately, the Senate uh, in the vote this week, even though Senator Lankford took to the Senate floor, made his case once again, and basically saying to his colleagues, this is a problem that needs to be addressed. It needs to be solved. And this is this is the way to do it. Let's let's start down this road. Uh, and yet, clearly, there was uh, there was no interest in that. And uh, um, in the and, House. On the, and on and on the House side, yeah. dead dead on arrival. Yeah. And so. Um, so I think I think it is it is a conversation that I think will continue. I mean, it's not going away. I mean, when we think about the fact in the last three years there have been more illegal border crossings at the southern border than in the previous twelve. So it's a, it's an escalating problem that people want resolution, and yet here is something where people have worked and crafted a hard-fought, uh, negotiated bill. Uh, where there had to be give and take on both sides mm-hmm. to forge something uh, to to lay out there to be talked about. Um, that frankly, many thought uh, many of the things that are encompassed in this bill 
could never happen or even be on the on the table for a, a for a vote and yet this is where this is where the bill this is where the bill stood so um, I think uh, it it's one of those things I think Senator Langford to one of the re- reporters said something about the fact when they asked him uh, how he felt he said he felt like he'd been run over by a truck and then back back over again I mean he he laid it out there and took a very studious very deliberate uh, approach to trying to craft a bill in a way that I think uh, most Americans uh, should applaud, mm-hmm. that this is what uh, this is what the process is all about, the give and take. No one's going to be 100%, as he pointed out more than once, no one's going to be 100% happy with, with some bill of this magnitude unless you have the give and take and at least have some forward motion. So uh, we'll see how the conversation goes forward. Clearly, everyone anticipates this is a talking point and a, a major part of the uh, presidential discussion from here till November. Um, what what Congress chooses to, to do going forward remains to be seen, but I think it is absolutely without dispute that we are long overdue seeing something happen. Right. Absolutely. And there is uh, just without a doubt a crisis at our border. I mean, I I think that that is an indisputed fact. I I think um, Americans can uh, debate on, you know, what has uh, caused that crisis. I think that we can debate about what to do about that crisis. But the fact that a U.S. senator from Oklahoma was the top negotiator uh, from the Republican aisle in the United States Senate uh, for months on this is something that Oklahomans ought to be enormously proud of. Uh, I think that, um, you know, it's, I think it's been a, a very long time uh, since a United States senator from Oklahoma, and this isn't to, you know, slight any other uh, actions or efforts by other U.S. senators, but it's, this, is, this is an enormous uh, accomplishment uh, for a member of the Oklahoma delegation. And to see it fall flat, uh, especially whenever, you know, the House said it's dead on arrival, uh, is incredibly disappointing. Uh, I think that everybody can look at this bill and find things that they don't like, like you said, Neva, and, and find things that, that you do like. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, is that this is a negotiated congressional approach to immigration reform that we have not seen. What we, what we have seen for the last many decades is, you know, bouncing back and forth between uh, executive agency policy set by a president. And, you know, really the executive branch can only do so much uh, when it comes to immigration. You have to have congressional authority. And they are, they are running on uh, laws that, you know, existed before VCRs, uh, you, know, <laughs> you know, before everybody, you know, before we knew what a DVD was. I mean, and that's, that's the kind of, you know, uh, antiquated architecture that our immigration policy has been built upon for so long. And now we're so close uh, to having something that moves the needle on that um, and, and comes up with uh, a solution and to give executive branch, whether it's you know, President Biden or future presidents, something to work with that isn't re- responding to an immigration issue as it existed in t- frozen in time along, long before uh, you know, many of, uh, you know, long before many of the folks that are in Congress were still in Congress. I mean, I think that there may have been a few people there, but it's so long ago. Um, and then to see what Senator Lankford has, has uh, experienced as a result of this, what he's run into is uh, you've got Senator Lankford who's negotiating on behalf of the Republican Party, or at least what's left of it, uh, and then you've got the party of Trump uh, over in the House. And you have so many House members that are beholden uh, to Donald Trump and Donald Trump lobbying against this bill and being very clear uh, that you know, the, 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 the Trump uh, followers in this thing are, are really not 
hiding a whole lot and saying, we can't pass this, not because we dislike it. I mean, again, this is a negotiated compromise uh, and, and compromise hurts for everybody, but it's progress. Uh, they don't want to pass this bill because it could be perceived as a win for President Biden uh, on the issue of immigration. And immigration is, if you look at polls right now, uh, Americans put that near the top or at the top of things that they're concerned about. And it could be a defining issue for this presidential election. And there's a concern by President, former President Trump that if President Biden has a win on immigration and he can take some of that thunder away from President Trump, that it might tilt the favor, that might tilt the election towards President Biden. And that's exactly what this is. I mean, this is a, this is a, uh, a campaign uh, decision about the presidential election, not a policy decision. Senator Langford said on the, on the Senate floor that a popular commentator threatened that he would do whatever he could to destroy Senator Langford uh, and his political career uh, for, for his effort as a negotiator in this, for, for working with Democrats across the aisle to come up with a compromise. Uh, that's the kind of situation that we're in right now. And, and until you can get, until the Republican Party can get a break from the stranglehold that Donald Trump has over the United States House of Representatives, um, it's going to be difficult to see how this ultimately passes before the election. You know, it's interesting, too, and I think it is important. When you think about this bill, there was so much conversation leading up before the bill was ever even uh, given. Yeah, before people even knew what was in it. Before it was released. And I think it does beg the question of, are we going to reach a point where people will go back to finding out the real facts and the real information before they make a final decision? And I think there is, now that this is out there, I would encourage all of our listeners to, uh, to delve into it and to read this. this. The current system we have is a catch and release system. This new system would be a detain and deport system, and it is. It, there are so many elements to this, including a, one that I've been surprised there's been not that much conversation on, and that is uh, that there was $650 million, I believe, in, in the bill to continue to build and finish the wall. And ironically, in that, in that uh, information in the bill, the majority of the wall would not be built until the next administration. So the idea that somehow we're going to say who wins, who loses based on a bill that is going to take, uh, it's not going to take effect overnight, even if it were passed. I mean, there's much to be done. But I do think the conversation, because it is number one or number two in many polls nationally, uh, the issue that uh, Americans are most interested, most concerned about, that it is an opportunity to, to dig in on your own and find out what we're really talking about. Find out the facts, find out the information, and make a decision for yourself whether you think it was good or bad. Swadley's Barbecue is calling on a judge to declare the state owes money to the company for the situation over state park restaurants. Swadley says it increased the value of the restaurants by nearly $12 million, and the state owes $2.5 million for unpaid invoices and other reimbursements. The state sued Swadley's and terminated its contract following charges of misspending and shoddy record-keeping. Ryan, does Swadley's have a case here? Well, I mean, it remains to be seen. Uh, there, there are a lot of things that we don't know, including, uh, to my knowledge, whether the Swadley's uh, debacle with the tourism department is still under any criminal investigation by you know state or, or federal law enforcement officials. Uh, you know there there are so many unanswered questions of what actually happened right there. And you know the the Swadley's camp is saying, listen, you know, Governor Stitt, uh, Lieutenant Governor Patel, Pinnell, 
the reason that they filed suit, the reason they canceled these contracts and walked away so quickly is because they were trying to walk away from a political liability during the last election cycle. And that uh, in reality, that uh, what was actually going on was that the state owed Swadley's this money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, who knows? Uh, you know, that's, that's just it. I, I think that you know, there's, there's a lot that remains to be seen here. Um, I, it'll be interesting to see how the state responds to this motion for summary judgment um, and what evidence they want to put out there. Because when, when you're talking about a motion for summary judgment, you really are talking about the weight of the evidence that's been presented so far. Uh, I mean, it's not just it, can, the, can, the, uh, can the court make a decision on, on a matter of law. I mean, the court in this instance, it really is going to be weighing some evidence. And so what does the state put out there in response to this? Um, and, you know, how does, how does the governor respond to this? Um, you know, we, we have seen a, a, turn, a real turnaround at, at tourism, and, you know, Swadley's wants to take some credit for that and wants to get paid for that. Um, you know, if, I, I've got to think that if you're the Swadley's camp, uh, at least, you know, if, if, I, if I were an attorney representing Swadley's and you want to file something like this and you really want to press the envelope, uh, one of the conversations I'm having is what skeletons are out there? Because, you know, if, if we start, if we start, you know, you know, kicking things up, you know, what, what, what are we really going to find? Uh, are we going to find something that puts Swadley's in a potential either, you know, greater civil liability or potential criminal liability? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that, you know, if I'm counsel, I wouldn't advise them to move forward with a motion like this unless they could come to me and say, absolutely not. We're in the clear. We're in the right on this. And we feel like we've got the evidence to prove that. Now, all of that's going to be uh, borne out as the response to the motion is, and we see some arguments. Um, and, you know, the court may say that there's just not enough at this mm-hmm. point, and we, we may end up in a situation where there's more discovery and ultimately a trial. Neva? It is interesting because uh, Swadley's legal brief, it does allege that there, in their words, was a cover-up uh, that was orchestrated basically to hide what they, what they indicated was a four- uh, $4 million deficit in the uh, tourism department's budget. And that's where they went on, as you as you uh, said, Ryan, it went on to basically say that it was uh, the governor and the lieutenant governor up for re-election in 2022 that were using Swadley as a scapegoat based upon this allegation that they make in their brief. So you're right. I mean, they are rolling out some very specific uh, details, things related to their contract that they believe uh, um, uh, come into uh, come to bear in this whole conversation. So it will be fascinating to see. Does this open the door to a much larger um, uh, legal uh, battle mm-hmm. between uh, Swadley's, uh, the Department of Tourism, State of Oklahoma, uh, the governor, lieutenant governor, and others, uh, or will this be uh, swiftly dispatched one way or the other? It remains to be seen, but it is, it's been a messy, it's been a messy, complicated um, uh, action all the way around from the, from the point that the, uh, the restaurants were closed at these parks. Now restaurants back open under, under uh, new management contracts with other, other companies. So uh, I think it, I think again, it bodes well for, tourism to uh, hope that this can be uh, swiftly taken care of as swiftly as the courts uh, um, the courts move to uh, resolve these issues but it is that uh, again it's it's it is that type of story out there that from the business climate standpoint does give pause to people they want to know you know what what are the facts let's get this resolved one way or the other so um, I think this I think whether this came out of left field or whether uh, people were anticipating this 
this is something that's been going on for two years, and we may be talking about it two years from now. Then we'll see if this Oklahoma City uh, District Judge uh, moves quickly and what the resolution is. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KLSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KLSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KLSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at donate.kosu.org. Hey there, this is Jenny May Harms with KOSU, where we want to talk with you, not just at you. One way we connect with listeners just like you is through social media, like Instagram. So follow us at KOSU Radio, where you'll get a behind-the-scenes look into KOSU reporting, station news, and even ticket giveaways. Just follow KOSU Radio on Instagram, and we'll see you there.